Well, we welcome you this morning. This is a household of faith. It is not a place of uh, anonymity. We do want you to get to know each other, and you'll see some of the reason for that in the text this morning. We're going to study again. text we studied a couple of weeks ago, which is Jesus in Gethsemane with the disciples. So please turn to Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. The last time we studied this text, we focused primarily on the relationship of our Lord and his Father. The burden that he bore, the nature of his suffering, the theology, uh, the biblical doctrine behind what he prayed and why he prayed it. But this time I want us to focus instead on the relationship not between Jesus Christ and God the Father, but rather between Jesus Christ and the disciples. You remember last week that at the beginning I said that the disciples, as it came to the end of their master's life, um, vehemently protested every time he told them who they really were and what they were really going to do, vehemently they protested that they were not weak and that they would never abandon him. And I think that as we look at the disciples and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, but really so often in the accounts of the Gospels, we're reminded that um, even the most timid and meek among us habitually estimates his or her failures to be less than they really are. Uh, To not be as serious as others see them, to be more infrequent than they are in reality, and to tell themselves that their failures are not at all sinful or wicked, they're just errors of judgment, errors of choice. Um, The moral content of failures today is stripped. If you think about the whole issue of alcoholism, alcoholism is a clinical term for what the Bible refers to as uh, loving wine or being drunk. And uh, so today we use the term bad choices. And what that does is, again, it makes it a function of education rather than moral condition of a heart, a heart that's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We think of our sins as peccadillos, little white lies, oversights, thoughtlessness. I'm sorry I was thoughtless, you know. Well, no, probably you weren't. Probably your thought was focused on yourself instead of them. But you weren't thoughtless, you know. Uh, Misunderstandings, um, good intentions gone wrong. And you reserve for the little lady who is hacked to pieces by her son who's lived with her for years with a hatchet and buried in black plastic bags. Now that's sin. And so if you ask people, if you go to churches today and you say, do you ever discipline people, which is a very good diagnostic question in choosing a a new church, and any biblical church will say, yeah, we just did discipline. Then you say, well, what was the discipline? And the answer will be, well, we had this little old lady that was hacked to pieces by her son with a hatchet. And he he buried her in, in the backyard in black plastic bags. Yeah. 
You know, in other words, absolutely nothing today rises to the level of an impeachable offense. And when it does, if we can get rid of it and hide it, we'll do it. Only the things that are just so shameful that even the women want the person disciplined will ever get disciplined in a church today. And the reason is that we all want to think highly of ourselves. And in order to think highly of myself, you have to think highly of me. And the quid pro quo is if you think highly of me, I'll think highly of you. Right? And pastor and people, elders and pastor, everybody, it's a, it's a conspiracy. And I said in the earlier service that, um, that the reason that I am a Christian is because I have never read any book that tells me the truth about myself other than this book. Never. It's the only book that doesn't lie to me. There's some books that only lie, you know, 90% of the time. Most books lie 100% of the time. Some 90. Some may get down to 80. But this one tells me the truth absolutely every single time I read every verse, every word of it. It tells me the truth about myself. And you know what? It never flatters me. It's amazing. And it doesn't flatter the disciples, we see them towards the end of the life, that they're very, very, the end of Jesus' life, that they're very cocky, convinced of their excellence and how they're going to stand with Jesus to the end. And it doesn't flatter Peter, James, and John. You know, the three disciples closest to Jesus, they're convinced. And then it shows us, it strips, you know, the curtain opens up, it strips them naked, and it says, okay, here's Peter, James, and John. And then in a little while, it's going to strip Peter. And we're going to find him so trembling in front of a young girl at night that it's not enough for him to deny it. He does it with curses. He's so intimidated by this girl that he curses as he denies that he is associated with Jesus. This is the man that a short while earlier had said, I'll go to the death before I'll deny you, you know. And if we go to Scripture and we read what it has to say, we find that it warns us again and again and again about conceit. There are a couple of, uh, I'm going to read a few texts, and there are a couple here I I don't ever remember reading before. I know I have, but I I don't remember them. Like this one, Romans 11.20. It says at the end of Romans 11, verse 20, it says, Do not be conceited. Well, that doesn't surprise me. And then it has a comma, and it says, But fear. And so the Bible commands us not to be conceited. We're all okay with that. And then it says, rather, fear. Very interesting. And then the theme verse of the New England Patriots um, from Proverbs sixteen eighteen: pride goes before destruction. <laughs> I mean, come on, any of us that aren't Patriots fans, I'm not. Last year, right, we all sat there thinking pride goes before destruction. I mean, that verse went through millions of people's minds a year ago. Um, And if you don't understand what I'm saying, Taylor will send you an article, and it will explain it. And that really is the theme of movie after movie and book after book after book, is pride goes before destruction. 
and a haughty spirit before stumbling. You know what a haughty spirit is? You know, somebody that thinks they're better than everybody. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. Think of the people who claim today to be the representatives of evangelical justice. The people who think that they alone are advocates for the poor and the oppressed of the world. And their shtick in evangelical churches is to go around claiming the high moral ground of being in favor of social justice. All right? And just as a shorthand, let's call them the emergent church. Thank you for laughing, sweetie. My wife knows when I'm making a joke. But it's actually not a joke. The emergent church is like this. And they claim for themselves being contextualized in advocates advocating for social justice, right? Okay? That's what they are. The thing that boggles my mind is how proud they are of their commitment to social justice. Unbelievably proud. And so what they've done is they've taken the first third of this list, and they've done that, they think, but it says, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Have you ever thought about what the title emergent says? You don't emerge from something that's more beautiful than you are. You emerge from something that's really pig ugly and needs to be left on the trash heap. You know, a butterfly emerges (laughs) and doesn't want to stay where it was, right? When you emerge, you've evolved, you've progressed, you've emerged from something that is inferior to what you've now become. So like, it would be like this church calling itself the, um, the bigger and better and holier church, you know, which we actually sort of do. We just don't use the words. And we all have pride, you know. We can pursue justice and humility in a proud way. Some of the most proud people in churches are those who have a posture that is unbelievably humble. You think of Uriah Heep, if you've ever read Dickens. Unbelievably humble. Unbelievably disgusting. Philippians 2, 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And so that's a command for me to consider you more important than the senior pastor. I am to consider you more important than myself. So when I'm sitting in a counseling meeting and I have another appointment, I'm not supposed to think, well, I'm important and I have another appointment and what are they going to do? I'm supposed to think, you know, I better get this appointment done so they can return to the important things they gave up to come and meet with me. You understand that? Do I do it? No. 
thou, you know how to pray for me, but you're supposed to consider me more important than you. Now, forget me, you know, the person sitting next to you. They're to be more important than you. Wives, your husband's supposed to be more important than you. Husbands, your wife is supposed to be more important than you. The older people, here's a thought. In American culture today, the older people are supposed to be thought more important than the younger people. Now, that's a stretch. And our whole culture worships youth. You know, so we have university communities where you can't be old. And if you are, you're put up by the cyclotron. Here's one I really like. It's 1 Peter 5.5. 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And then immediately this command. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. You know, nobody likes to be subject to anybody. And those in authority have a tendency to lord it over those under them. So immediately... All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. One of the most sobering statements of all of Scripture is that God opposes the proud. You know what I thought, 9-11, when I watched it on television happening? You know what I thought? My immediate thought was, yep, God is opposing the United States And he's hitting the places of our greatest pride. He's hitting the financial markets of New York. He's hitting the Pentagon, our military might. And the last thing he'll hit is the pornography industry at Vegas or Hollywood. And I'm shocked that they didn't do the triad. doesn't mean I'm in favor of it, but we have to have some sense that God today is the same God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. God opposes the proud. And so we know, even if abortion wasn't true and wasn't going on in our country, we know that God is opposed to the United States of America because it's unbelievably proud. Any question? Does anybody want to argue the United States of America is not proud? I'll never forget what it feels like to come back in the U.S. with a U.S. passport. You know? It's just... This is the United States. Any of you been through that? You know what I'm talking about. You come back in the U.S. And it's like the pride of America. It just oozes out of you. I don't care how humble you are. You can't help but feel pride. Then here's one I've never known before. Third Peter, verse 9. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes. Now, I'm just curious. Is there anybody here that knows what the next phrase is? I asked in the first church, nobody did. Not Joyce Huck and not Wayne Huck. And not Eleanor. Does anybody know what it says next? Jake, do you? I'm sorry. Third John, verse 9. Tim. Where's Tim? Children's church. I wonder whether he would know it. Yeah, yeah. Did you know that's what it was, Michael? Okay, David, did you know what it was? Right on, dude. He said no. And I love that more, you know. Yeah, good, Stephen. You win. Anybody else know? Put your hand up. Anybody else? 
you wouldn't admit it, right? Here it is. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Isn't that fascinating? (laughs) Come on, laugh. That's you. You love to be first among them, and so you won't listen, you won't be taught, you won't submit, you won't listen, right? And then Proverbs 21.2, my theme verse, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Okay? And so Scripture commands us in Romans 12, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And so we see that as Jesus approached the crucifixion, his death, in Matthew 26:31, he said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. But they would not hear of it. They said, certainly not, Jesus. We would never do such a thing. And Peter, verse 33, Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. So what would you have said that night? What would you have said that night? What would you have said? Come on. Never. Never. I won't do it. I won't deny you. Matthew twenty six, thirty six to forty six, this is the word of God. It's eternally true. Jesus then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. As we said last week, just before two weeks ago, just before his death, Jesus did not party or gamble, and he didn't go on a cruise or to Disney World, and he didn't play video games or watch television. He went to a quiet olive orchard to the place where the olives were pressed and crushed and gave up their oil, and there he spent time with his heavenly Father in prayer. But notice this. As he went to pray, he took along his disciples, and he needed their fellowship. Jesus needed the fellowship of his disciples. 
many people today who think of church as being a place where you go much like you go to the drive-in window of Taco Bell or McDonald's. And you get your meal and you go. That's not the church. It never has been the church. Christians have never, ever given themselves to the church in that way. Christians know that fellowship is the lifeblood of the believer. Jesus did it. We should do it. And as he approached the time of his greatest test, he took the 12, the 11 now, because Judas had gone off to betray him. He took them with him. And then, not only did he bring them into the place of his suffering and agony, but then he took three and brought them particularly close to the place that he was going to pray. We see that Peter and James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, were brought. So you've got the 11 there, and then three are pulled out, so there are eight left there. You've got the three here, and you have Jesus over there. And what we see is that Jesus, as he came to the time of his crying and his groaning, of his being deeply grieved to the point of death, his terrible suffering, that he prays, but that next to him as he prays, he surrounds himself with the very men that he knows are going to betray him and are going to abandon him. In other words, Jesus took comfort from those men and from their presence. Now, what do we know about that evening? Well, we know that it's likely that some among the disciples, one or more of them, overheard what went on with Jesus, even though he was by himself, even though the three here were asleep. And it's likely if they were asleep that everybody was asleep, you know. Um, but somebody overheard him because we hear in Hebrews that the, the apostle says, in the days of his flesh, Speaking of Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety, because of his holiness. And so it appears that somebody in the garden, most likely one of the three, heard Jesus doing what? Offering up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. I remember a number of years ago at another church uh, having communion, and there was a man that was a notorious sinner in that church. And during communion one time, he was particularly under conviction of his sin, and so he was wailing. And I remember the next elders meeting, the elders telling me uh, that I was to make sure that we did not have such disruption in our worship service. It's pretty typical of us, isn't it? You know, no public demonstrations of emotion, you know. Um, And here Jesus is what? He's wailing. He's crying so loud that the eight or the three heard him. And they recorded it. This was the extremity that our Lord was in to the point of death. Verse 38, he says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Now, how were his disciples responding to this terrible agony? They hear him crying and wailing. They hear him say to the point of death. And how do they respond? Verse 40, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Not your best moment, is it? 
in Luke it says that it connects their sleeping with their overwhelming sorrow. And if you've ever had your wife divorce you or you've lost a child or you've lost a mother or father, you know that there are some things that can't be dealt with other than to go to sleep. And apparently the disciples were so overwhelmed with their own grief and horror at what they knew was coming that sleep was their narcotic. Nevertheless, Jesus asked them to keep watch, and the meaning of keep watch is stay awake. And they didn't. They went to sleep. So Jesus needed them, and they were not there for him. It's interesting, when he comes back the first time, verse 40, Jesus came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and it says, he said to them, so you men, men's plural, right? Isn't that weird? Look at it. He said to Peter, (laughs) hey, hey, you know, know, can you imagine being Peter? Hey, I don't see them staying awake. So, Peter, you men couldn't stay awake? In other words, clearly Peter's the leader. Don't ever let the lies of the Roman Catholic Church concerning the Pope to lead you away from the reality of Peter leading the disciples. He's the leader. And so, even though Jesus is speaking to the three, he says Peter, you know, and he's speaking in plural said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. And then this statement that we're focusing on today, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So that's the first time. It says, verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed. Verse 43, came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and he left them again. That's the second time. Then verse 45, then he came to the disciples the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping? So he tells them to stay awake and to pray. They fall asleep the first time. He tells them to stay awake and pray. They fall asleep the second time. He tells them to stay awake. And then he comes back the third time and he says, okay, it's over. Sleep on, you know, sleep on. Behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is being betrayed. Verse 41, what caused them to fail him three times in a row? He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, what is this meaning of the spirit and the flesh? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What is the spirit that Jesus refers to? Is Jesus speaking of the Holy Spirit? No, Jesus is speaking of spirit and flesh in the same way they are spoken of a number of other places in Scripture. The spirit that Jesus refers to here is the spirit that caused the disciples to respond to Jesus' warning that they'd all fall away in this way. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing. In other words, they knew what was right, and they said, I'm going to do what's right. 
You know, we can fault them for saying that, but the truth is that it was the spirit in them that said that they would not fall away, and it was the flesh in them that caused them to fall away. So when Jesus says the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, he is pointing to the central controversy in the believer's life, the central conflict at the heart of that warfare that we refer to as sanctification, which never ends until death ushers us into the presence of the Lord. The Christian life is warfare. The Christian life is unceasing battle. Some of the most bloody conflicts are in the final hours of your life. It's called sanctification. Isn't it interesting that if we approached the Garden of Gethsemane from mainstream evangelical doctrine, which of course they won't call doctrine, they'll just say, the Bible says it. And what does the Bible say? Well, in mainstream evangelicalism, what it says over and over again is, we are seated in the heavenlies. All right. Which is a biblical statement. Right. Um, It is by grace you are saved. And this through faith, not of yourselves. And so mainstream evangelicalism says that any command, any guilt is a denial of your position in Christ. And what you need to do is learn how to constantly and immediately claim your position in Christ. Mainstream evangelicalism says that the method of your sanctification is grace. It's the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And so now approach the Garden of Gethsemane through mainstream evangelicalism. Jesus looks at the disciples sleeping and he realizes that that was what they're made for. And that that's why he dies. Because they're sleeping. And he says to them, take your rest, because I have come to do what you can't do. And claim my righteousness. This is not a performance-based narrative. It doesn't matter what you do. You're saved because of my righteousness. And when you wake up realizing that I've been praying the last hour, and so your sleep is righteous, because it's my righteousness that's transferred to your account. I'm the one who is seated on the right hand of the Father as your advocate. And it sounds so righteous, doesn't it? You know, I should be proclaiming Christ's awakeness, Christ's prayer, Christ's righteousness to you right now. And nobody should be dwelling on the failure of the disciples because it's Christ's righteousness that saves us. And Jesus says to them what? Jesus says, take your rest because I am in the middle of the conflict and I have done it all for you. (laughs) Come on, come on. Tell me. That sounds good, doesn't it? Don't think that these preachers have come up with something on their own. They only come up with... Scratching you where your ear itches. You say, here, it itches here. And they say, okay, let me reach my finger in there and scratch you. Now you know I'm quoting scripture, right? They will surround themselves in the last days with preachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear. Okay? What do we want to hear? Grace, 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 grace. We don't want to hear a performance narrative. We want to hear a grace narrative. 
Because grace takes the burden off us. Grace, no pastor is going to tell us to keep watch and pray because of sin. A grace pastor is going to say, we're saved by grace, we're sanctified by grace. And one day soon, we'll be present in heaven, and there it'll be grace, grace, grace. There's an old New Yorker cartoon where um, this, this, this drunk is seated at a bar talking to the bartender. And he says, I, I had a happy pregnancy and a happy delivery and a happy childhood, happy teenage years. And now I'm having a happy life. And one day soon, I'm going to have a happy death and then I'm going to go to heaven. Jesus, in the middle of his righteousness, when he was doing the most intense work that purchases our redemption, turned to the disciples that were closest to him and commanded them to keep watch and pray. Any gospel, any preaching of God's word that causes us to be less concerned about the sin and pride in our lives is a false gospel. You cannot see the grace of Jesus Christ without grieving for your sin and desiring to be holy the way he is. You don't love Jesus if you don't desire his holiness. That doesn't mean that you're saved by that desire. It doesn't mean that you're saved by growth and sanctification. But it does mean that you rejoice in it. One of the greatest joys as a believer is as the years go by, being able to look past and see that your slice of the pie is getting larger. (laughs) You know, you look back and you see, you know, I feel like I should just shoot myself today. But if I look back a year and five years and ten years and thirty, oh, you know, I can't believe what I was like 30 years ago. You know, what you see is the work, the progressive work of sanctification. That yes, immediately you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and you're transferred from death to life. But no, immediately you don't become holy and need to just kiss off and go to heaven. The battle has been joined, and you've now switched sides, and it'll get bloody. But as you look back over the bloodiness, what you see is day by day, the Lord conforms you to the image of Jesus Christ. And if you have perspective over many years, you'll see how you've grown in holiness. You won't see it today. (laughs) I mean, maybe you do. I don't. Seems like every day that you live, you are aware of more sin in your life. And any sin you get victory over, boy, it can come back and snooker you. You know, I had a sin. I gave it up for 20 years. Bam, back. Bam. I I was cocky, you know. That sin's over. But as you look back over your life, you do see that you grow in conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And that is grace, and it's bloody, and it's grace, and it's hard, and it's filled with commands and warnings, and it's filled with the fear of God. Remember it said, don't have a high view of yourself, but rather fear. And yet God does change us. And so what we see here is that there is at the center of sanctification, 
Not regeneration. Regeneration is a work that's complete in time. You're transferred from death to life. Judicial, imputation of Christ's righteousness. Complete. Sanctification ongoing. And much of this evangelical lies about the nature of grace comes because evangelicals confuse regeneration and sanctification. And they think that it's a lie about the nature of spiritual reality if we focus on our sin because Jesus Christ has done it all. And we're seated in the heavenlies. And our position in Christ is righteous. That's all true. But those truths are focused on regeneration. Sanctification, it's bloody. Keep watching and pray. Don't any of you harden your hearts. Today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts, but repent. You know, And you go, no, 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 no. I, I'm seated in the heavenlies. I'm just in my position in Christ. It's all great. Quick, 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 quick. No, no, no. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Oh, I think that's for unbelievers. And so then we begin to, like, cut and chop, like Jefferson with the Bible. You know, you know, and we begin to hack up Scripture to fit into our sort of, you know, shall I use the word, our dispensations? Sorry. I love you. Really, I do. <laughs> okay. I never forget Jack uh, Philippi. You remember Jack Philippi? He was here, painted my house, dear brother. I never forget when we were in a pastor's meeting one day, Jack went to Dallas, and Jack looking at me, and I had suggested that we, during Lent, in our churches, go through the woes. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, right? And Jack looked at me, and he said, those aren't for the church age. And I looked, and I thought he was my friend. <laughs> and I looked, and I said, What? And he kind of got embarrassed, and he says, well, those aren't, for, those aren't for now. You know, we can't preach on them because they don't apply to us today. And I looked at him, I said, Jack, you know, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. You go across heaven and earth to win a single convert and then turn him into twice the son of hell you are yourselves. I'm so relieved to know that that doesn't apply to us. Jack. <laughs> <laughs> very close and it was very sweet that Jack began to get embarrassed you know woe unto you scribes and Pharisees you clean the inside of the cup woe unto you scribes and Pharisees you do your works of righteousness to be seen by men and so when it comes to Jesus in the garden at the time of him doing the work of redeeming us from our sin in that context, with his disciples and with the three that he's closest to, he commands them to keep watch and to pray. And you know what the Christian life is? The Christian life, from beginning to end, is giving glory to God and humbling ourselves. And it would be very perverse if the work of Christ, of regeneration, had its significance in allowing us to get cocky, and hard-hearted and to take pride in ourselves the rest of our lives. And yet that's what the Reformed Church is filled with. It is filled with people who refuse to be in small groups. Refuse. Why? <laughs> Why do Reformed people refuse to be in small groups? Because it says in James, confess your faults to one another. And when you start confessing your, your faults to one another, then you have to be humble.
You know, people, I know you. You all know me, but I know you. And we do not want to be in a context where we have to ask people to pray for us where the sin that Satan's enticing us with is having a heyday and winning. We don't want it. Because you know what? Then we have to come back next week and confess that we've failed again. And you know what? After that goes on for two or three years, then some deacons will come along and they'll say to us, you know, we're going to take you to the elders because you're not really repenting. Every time you say you're repenting, you're not. Because if you were repenting, there would be progress, and there ain't no progress. And we go, you know, that's what I don't like about Church of the Good Shepherd. You know, they don't understand grace. They don't understand that we're seated in the heavenlies. You know, and there aren't any artists that go there. That was for you, Chantal. No, we reform people want everything to be intellectual in our brains, you know. Nothing about sin. Or sin in the abstract is a construct, a hypothetical construct, you know. <laughs> you know, something that we discuss. That's something we confess. Do you know what? I was reading Calvin this last week because I have to. Because I'm teaching this class. And you know what I found Calvin saying? He said that from the earliest years of the church, the way the Lord's Supper was celebrated was that just before the Lord's Supper, the people of God did what? Do you know what? This is what he said. You ready? Here, stand up. This is what they did. That's what they did. Why? Why? Why did the early church kiss each other? Doesn't sound like a good reformed church, does it? Why did they do that? Because it's humbling. Stand up again. Watch this. I think reformed people invented the handshake. <laughs> Why do you think they kissed each other? You know why they kissed each other? Because it's very hard to kiss somebody that you're resenting and that you're bitter and jealous against, right? It's very, very hard. It's so intimate. But that's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is obviously the church had such intimacy that they could be jealous of one another and resent each other. Our churches are so anonymous that you don't ever have to sit in the pew and think, I don't want to kiss them before communion. You know what I'm saying? It's like McDonald's, you know? This dude, Taco Bell last night, he's got on this coat, and it's made to look like a skeleton. You know? It's got like a skull around his head with the hoodie, and then like everything else is bones, and he's big, right? And I think, is it Halloween? And then I think, no. And then I think, this must be a fashion. You know, really, when I go to Taco Bell, I don't want to see him. So I learned my lesson. I'm going to stay in my car instead of going into Taco Bell. Because I ate at home anyhow. 
And that's how church is today. That's how church is. We go to church. The pastor knows how to scratch our ears. We don't have to kiss anybody. And even if we did have to kiss anybody, it wouldn't mean anything to us because we don't believe in fellowship. And we don't want to fail Jesus, and so we're not even his disciples. Because if we were his disciples, we'd fail him. And we certainly don't get close like Peter and James and John. Because, man, they really failed him. And so we're atomistic. We're all individuals, and we all cover up our tracks real well. And if we do go to small group, we make sure we choose one where there is no intimacy and there's no confessing of sins. And if the leader is not selected with the goal of keeping there from being confession of sins... Then we go and complain to the pastors and elders that the leader's lousy because, you know, there's blood and guts on the walls and floors incommoding the passers-by. Look, here's the truth. The truth is the Christian life is a battle until the end. And when you become a Christian, you sign up for that battle and you transfer your allegiance from the team that's winning to the team that's losing. And so the rest of your life, you will take the hits. That's the meaning of Paul saying, if the resurrection isn't true, then we are of all men stupidest, most foolish. You're on the losing side, but one day your victor will return. And so you're desperate. Because you're pressed in on all sides. That's the Christian life. And being pressed in on all sides, you're desperate for fellowship. So when you have your dark night of the soul, you make sure you're surrounded with the people that love you most. And you tell them to watch and pray. And when they fail you, you're like Jesus. You don't shame them. But you say to them something so gentle as the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I mean, did you ever think of the compassion of Christ in saying that? He's acknowledging that they want to do what's right. Not me. I run into my son at that point. <laughs> it's like, ain't nothing good in him. <laughs> you know? It's just like you, Taylor. You know? You never, ever, you know. Why can't I depend on you? Why do you always, you know? And Jesus doesn't say, why do you always, you know? Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Keep watch and pray. The final application is, you better be in a situation where you must pray. Because if you don't feel the need, if you're not desperate to pray, then guess what? You know why? Because you love your flesh. There's only two positions to be in in the Christian life. One is at war and the other is at peace. And it ain't good to be at peace. And you know what I find about myself? You know why I don't want to pray usually? You know why? I don't want to pray because I don't want the Spirit to even be alive, let alone win. I'm completely in love with my flesh. I'm sitting in a counseling appointment, and what I'm thinking at that counseling appointment is, you know, this has been a hard day for me. I have had to bear much. And I would despair except that I called Mary Lee before this appointment and found out that we're having Algerian chicken for dinner. And I sit there in the counseling appointment and I think about Algerian chicken. And that gets me through the counseling appointment. And that's our lives. 
You know, we're like little children waiting for the next fun thing. Like Joseph when he was young. Every prayer. Dear Jesus, help us to have a good time. Amen. (laughs) I mean, it went on for years, and I was sure my son had no knowledge of God. (laughs) Actually, what I thought was that my son was maybe had a family resemblance. (laughs) But I was smart enough not to actually say it. Keep watch and pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Let me read from Galatians as we end. But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are these are in opposition to each other. Remember, it's talking to Christians. No, it doesn't talk about grace. Talking about war. Flesh and spirit. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have claimed their position in Christ and recognize it's by grace you are saved. Is that what it says? No. It says those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's bloody work. (laughs) And it's bloody work for me. It doesn't make any sense. It would be bloody for me and not for you. It's bloody in the pastoral staff. It's bloody in the elders' meetings. It's bloody in the women's ministries committee. It's bloody in all our marriages. And so that's this church. That's our shtick. Bloodiness. And from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. O cross that seekest me through pain, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead. And from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. So now we have the Lord's Supper, and if the elders would come, please. By the way, if you want to read a book on this theme of the conflict between the flesh and the spirit that's at the heart of sanctification, and you want to get depressed about what a bad reader you are, I would recommend a book by John Owen called Indwelling Sin. It's very hard to read, but it's an extended uh, meditation on this war and how real it is. And it's probably about the best thing you can read on sanctification that will encourage you to mortify, to crucify your passions and desires. Uh, It'll be hard, but uh, I bet, I'm sure that it's on the Internet free and that you can just download it and read it. You don't even have to pay. It's out of copyright. So that's good, too, because you don't give money to evangelical publishers. It's a joke.